service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about former NFL defensive end Robert Rozier are insane. He killed seven people that we know of as part of a murder cult in Florida. He did the bidding of a self-proclaimed messiah, a man with a habit of ordering the beheadings of followers who dared speak out against him. He stabbed some victims through the heart, others he shot execution style, and then he cut off their ears as proof that he had taken another life. And Robert Rozier was... Okay, well, technically he wasn't exactly involved in any truly great sports moments. His tenure both the NFL and the Canadian Football League were extremely brief, and he racked up more warrants with the cops than he did stats on the gridiron. Kind of like that clip I played for you at the top of the show. That wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called In a Wild Crocodile MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights from WLVI to a broadcast of Larry Bird's Boston Celtics 120-102 win over the Washington Bullets. And why would I play you that specific slice of hick from French Lick cheese, could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on October 31st, 1986. And that was the day that Robert Rozier was chased by dogs into the woods and arrested for murder. On this episode... Murder cults, severed ears, beheadings, and Robert Rozier. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 6, Sportsland. November 1981. Headlights scraped across bald cypress and stangler fig trees on the edge of the Everglades. A car slowly pulled off the road. The driver put it in park. One of the passengers, Ricardo Woodside, was sweating through his white robe. If it's not the heat, you know what they say. It's the goddamn humidity. Ricardo felt like he was inside someone's clammy fist. The driver cut the engine, but left the lights on. Through the buzz of mosquitoes and the low croak of frogs, Ricardo could hear wheezing from the trunk. He and the two other men stepped out of the car. The headlights made their white robes glow and also clearly showed that the robes were not pristine. They were covered in splotches of fresh blood. The men circled around to the back of the car and they popped the trunk. Inside, Aston Green struggled against the ropes that bound him. Ricardo couldn't believe Green had any fight left in him after the beating he took back at the Temple of Love. A dozen guys with tire irons and wooden staffs worked him over good. Boots stomped so hard that Green had shoe print bruises on his chest. Ricardo almost felt sorry for him. And then he remembered, this guy was a snake, a hypocrite. Aston Green had turned his back on God. The driver told Ricardo to stay with the car and keep lookout. They got machetes out of the back seat and hauled Green out of the trunk. As they dragged him to a rock pit nearby, Ricardo was relieved he wouldn't see what came next, but he could hear it. 
a dull thump of the machete coming down, chopping, cutting, tearing, metal sinking into skin over and over. Ricardo lost count. Jesus, how many fucking chops did it take to cut a guy's head off? 20, 30, then a pause. Damn, he heard the driver say, this blade is dull. The hacking sound started again. Ricardo fought the urge to look over his shoulder. Finally, the other two men came back up the hill and signaled for him to get in the car. They pulled out of the swamp and headed for the Temple of Love to report the job was done. When they got there, the man they believed to be the son of God greeted them with a broad smile. Next time, he said, put the head in the basket and hang it on a post downtown so all of Miami would fear the name of Yahweh ben Yahweh. Yahweh ben Yahweh was born Hulan Mitchell Jr., the son of a Pentecostal preacher. As a young man, he idolized Malcolm X, and he took the name Hulan X when he joined the Nation of Islam in the 60s, but he didn't last long. He claimed a rival Nation of Islam preacher took out a hit on him. In reality, Hulan X embezzled 50 grand from the Nation of Islam, and he was even accused of sexual abuse in his Atlanta ministry. He fled Atlanta for Miami. By 1979, he was calling himself Yahweh ben Yahweh, Hebrew for God, son of God. He claimed he was the biblical Jesus Christ and the second coming, and also God himself. He grafted the black empowerment message of the Nation of Islam onto black Israelite philosophy. The idea that the major characters in the Bible were all black, and thus they were the real chosen people. His church, the Nation of Yahweh, was headquartered at the Temple of Love, a dilapidated warehouse that took up an entire block in Miami's Liberty City neighborhood. His message of empowerment quickly drew converts. Followers wore pristine white robes and turbans. The women handed out flyers on the streets. The men patrolled Liberty City with six-foot wooden staffs. The staffs were supposed to remind people of Moses, but the message they sent was clear. Don't fuck with the Yahwehs. Crime dropped in Liberty City. The Yahwehs bought up property around Miami. They rehabbed apartment buildings and hotels. Black Miami had been devastated by riots in 1980. The Yahwehs were helping to bring it back. Not everyone was fully on board. Over time, Aston Green and a small group of dissidents grew skeptical of their messiah. They moved out of the temple and into their own apartment, and they made plans to form their own splinter church. Ben Yahweh was enraged at the idea anyone would leave him. How could they claim to love God and not love God's own son? The next time Green showed up at the Temple of Love wearing jeans and a t-shirt instead of his white robe and turban, Ben Yahweh welcomed him with open arms. And then, he ordered a dozen Yahwehs to beat Green half to death. They all surrounded him, clad in those white robes, holding tire irons and wooden staffs. Green was outnumbered, outarmed. They struck him in the ribs, the arms, the chest, his head. He felt the air escape his lungs. He heard his bones crack. He watched his blood spill on the floor. And then, on their leader's orders, the Yahwehs rolled Green up in a carpet and drove him out to the swamp. The next morning, a construction worker found Aston Green's body under a bloody blanket in the rock pit. His head was found a few feet away. Green was dumped in the land of gators, snakes, and the kind of heat and humidity that would rot a body to nothing in record time. He couldn't ask for a better place to hide a corpse. But no one was looking to hide Aston Green's body. They were looking to send a message. In Green's apartment, 
the message was received. Two of the other dissidents, a husband and wife, went to the police as soon as they heard. They couldn't say who did it, but they knew why. Aston Green was killed for trying to leave the Nation of Yahweh cult. The cops said they'd look into it. The couple returned to their apartment, but men from the cult were waiting in ambush. They shot him in the head, and they shot her in the gut, and wedged a machete in her neck so deep that they had trouble dislodging it. The neighbors came rushing to help when they heard the noise. The Yahwehs ran off, and the woman was rushed to the hospital. When she regained consciousness, she couldn't identify the men who killed her husband and tried to cut off her head. She only knew they were Yahwehs. The cops rolled up on the Temple of Love. No one was talking. They were brought into Ben Yahweh's office. Men with staffs stood behind him. They flanked him everywhere he went. Ben Yahweh held up an old photo of a lynching. This is what your people have done to us for the last 400 years, he told the cops. And that was all the cops were getting out of him. Faced with a wall of silence, the cops backed off. Plus, they had enough to keep them busy. Miami was having a record year for homicides. Two dead cult members were low priority. Once the police were gone, Ben Yahweh called his followers into the main meeting room of the temple. Behold, he had pulled off a miracle. The hypocrites called the police for help, and still his wrath had found them. The congregation applauded. The brush with the cops made him even more bold. Ben Yahweh decided that 1982 would be a year of expansion for the church. He traveled the country preaching the gospel of his own divinity. Along the way, he met a washed-up NFL player on the lam from the Canadian Mounties, a man who would become his chief enforcer and his Judas. Robert Rogier's fingers brushed the handle of the 12-inch Japanese knife in his jacket pocket. He stalked the streets of Coconut Grove on Miami's south side. Plenty of guys on the prowl, not just locals, but closeted businessmen away from their wives on work trips, cruising for a hookup. Rogier was cruising for something else entirely. He tried not to attract attention. At 6'4", 240, that was tough. He slouched to hide his height, but even in his street clothes, he stood out. It was Saturday night, and the Grove was buzzing. New wave pop and the last gasp of disco pumped out of the nightclubs and bars. The street was like the spot on the dial between stations, musical signals overlapping. People moved from place to place in groups. Although Coconut Grove was a primarily gay neighborhood, it was still the American South in the mid-80s. AIDS had people panicked, and that fear could easily turn to violence from the straights or from the cops. Even in the Grove, though, there was safety in numbers. Rogier waited for someone to fall back, to separate from the pack, someone weak and isolated. He saw his opportunity. A lone drunk stumbled out of a bar. The man looked around, dazed like an owl in daylight. He wobbled down the street alone. Rogier fell in behind him. He kept a safe distance. Revelers parted on the sidewalk to let him through. He let his broad shoulders do the talking. People shied away, avoiding his eyes. But Robert Rogier didn't see any of them. He was focused on his target. He followed the man for blocks back to his shitty apartment building at the edge of the neighborhood. Rogier caught the front door before it swung shut and locked. 
The man was oblivious. He tried to whistle one of the songs playing on the strip, but he was as tuneless as a punctured tire. Rozier was careful, quiet. They climbed the stairs to the third floor hallway. The man fumbled his keys, dropped them, picked them up. Finally, he got a key in the lock. The deadbolt clacked open, and then Rozier pounced. He shoved the man into his apartment and slammed the door behind them. He pulled the knife from his jacket. The drunk looked at him as if to say, why me, what did I do to you? Without a word, Rogier raised up the knife and stabbed the man through his heart. The guy's mouth gaped like a gutted fish. He didn't make a sound as the life oozed out of him. As Rogier pulled the blade out, he heard something behind him. There, in a bedroom doorway, a roommate. It was almost too easy. Two birds, one stone, or one knife. Rogier swiftly crossed the room and stabbed the other man to death. Music drifted in through the window. Rogier thought about chopping off the heads of the two men as trophies, but he had no way to carry them out of the grove without being seen. So he made sure that his knife was still bloody when he put it back in his jacket pocket. Back at the Temple of Love, Rozier showed Yahweh ben Yahweh the bloody knife. The cult leader smiled and congratulated his disciple. He had completed his initiation. He could join the inner circle of the nation of Yahweh, a group of enforcers called the Death Angels. But next time, he said, bring something back for proof. Next time, cut off in the ear. Robert Rozier's first taste of fame came as a star defensive back at the University of California, Berkeley. He was recruited by a coach who managed to get Rozier's ass out of a number of jams, not least of which was a charge of, quote, contributing to the delinquency of a minor, unquote. But coach couldn't save his star player from a plague of bad grades. Rozier failed to graduate. Didn't matter. He still managed to get drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals as a ninth round pick in 1979. Life as a pro athlete wasn't all it was cracked up to be. He rode the bench for his first season, then the cards let him go. He bounced around the Canadian Football League for a few years, but the only stat he racked up was 32 fraud warrants for bounced checks. He fled to the States where he signed with the LA Raiders, a team with its own reputation for harboring undesirable elements. Between drugs, alcohol, and the constant threat of extradition, Rozier was cut loose after just two weeks. Rozier considered himself religious, the kind of guy who chastised his teammates when they didn't say grace. So when he met Yahweh ben Yahweh in 1982, he liked what he heard. The church had a strong message of empowerment and an entrepreneurial spirit. At that moment, Rozier wasn't ready to give up everything and follow this self-proclaimed son of God. But just a few years later, in 1986, everything changed. Rozier was fresh off a six-month prison stint for his latest fraudulent activity. He didn't have much. He didn't have anyone. Moving into the Temple of Love suddenly seemed like a good option. Maybe even the only option. Rozier gave all his worldly belongings to the church and donned the white robes and turbans of the nation of Yahweh. It was a good time to join up. The Yahwehs were big business in 1986. They owned hotels, apartment buildings, grocery stores, and a fleet of Rolls-Royce limos. The estimated worth of the Yahweh cult was around $250 million, which is about, I'm not shitting you, $666 million today. 666, no joke. Even public perception of the group had changed. People used to get pissed when the Yahwehs moved into their neighborhood. You go Yahweh, I go my way, they'd taunt. 
But now the neighborhoods with Yahweh businesses were the safest black neighborhoods in the city. People were grateful to see the men in the white robes walking the street with their huge wooden staffs. The Yahwehs brought fresh food to places that hadn't seen any in years. They brought money into broke neighborhoods, and they brought peace. Ben Yahweh got invites to speak at civic events downtown. He met the mayor and the city councilman. He served on the Chamber of Commerce. Ben Yahweh wasn't just a man of faith, he was a pillar of the community. Inside the Temple of Love, though, that was a different story. Ben Yahweh's teachings were taking a darker turn. He preached that the only way black people were going to truly get what was theirs was to kill every white devil out there. If his followers loved him, they would go out and kill a white devil for him, and they'd bring home severed ears as proof. Across Miami, bodies started turning up. Homeless men, transients, drunks, all white, beaten, shot, stabbed with long knives, or chopped up with dull blades, ears missing. The death angels flanked Ben Yahweh everywhere he went. They walked the halls of the Temple of Love with machetes tucked into their belts for all to see. Ben Yahweh told them when and what they ate, where or when they slept, when and who they fucked. Cult members who had jobs signed their checks over to the church. No job, you were out on the street, selling tapes of Ben Yahweh's sermons. And if you didn't meet the daily quota, off to a place called the Room of Understanding, a darkened chamber in the temple where you kneeled for hours at a time on a cold concrete floor. The darker things got, the more paranoid Ben Yahweh became. One recruit to the cult was a jacked karate expert from New Orleans. Ben Yahweh was convinced that the black belt was an assassin sent to kill him. He called the man out in front of the congregation. Do you want to hurt me? He asked the black belt. I only want to kiss your feet, the man responded. Ben Yahweh didn't believe him. He ordered the black belt to fight one of his death angels in front of the entire congregation. The guy knocked the death angel's ass out, cold. Then, Ben Yahweh ordered the rest of the death angels to attack. They surrounded the black belt, tire irons in their hands, and then they smashed his skull in. He hit the floor, screaming. The congregation locked the doors. Hit him some more, they were told. Don't let him get back up. Don't stop. Even if he stops moving, you don't stop hitting him. Soon, hitting him wasn't enough. They ripped his clothes off. And then, someone took a broom handle, wedged it deep into the black belt's eye socket, and poked his eye out. The cult that kills together, Ben Yahweh reasoned, stays together. When the black belt was finally dead, Ben Yahweh ordered every member of the congregation to beat the one-eyed corpse with a stick, even the kids. Then, the death angels rolled the body in a carpet and threw it in a canal. The body was never found. Ben Yahweh offered a warning to his followers. No one in here tells what happened, he said, or the same will happen to you. Robert Rozier wasn't in the room when the black belt was brutally beaten to death, but the Messiah's warning got around, and Rozier listened up. After all, he had access to the best the nation of Yahweh had to offer, the nicest accommodations, the prettiest women. This was what life in the NFL was supposed to be like. These were the promises of the Cardinals and the Raiders. Only it never worked out that way. Until now. He and the other death angels stalked Miami, looking for the opportunity to bring years back to the Temple of Love. One night, Rozier spotted a guy passed out in his car in a parking lot in South Miami. He stabbed him to death and chopped off his ear. But when he went to slip it in his pocket, he missed. He was halfway back to the temple when he realized he'd lost the fucking thing. He couldn't go back empty-handed. He doubled back to the parking lot. The body was right where he left it. He chopped off the other ear. And while he was there, 
he took the gun from the dead guy's glove compartment. Because a death angel could never have too many guns. The night before Halloween isn't about treats. It's all about tricks. Depending on where you live, Devil's Night is the night for vandalism and misdemeanors. Maybe a little arson here or there. In the 1980s, suburban moms were terrified of Devil's Night. They were convinced there were subliminal messages in every heavy metal album and baby-eating Satan worshippers in every preschool. Satanic panic changed the meaning of Devil's Night. Doors were locked. Kids were kept safely inside. You never knew if devils were on the prowl in your neighborhood. And on Devil's Night 1986, hell was empty, and all the devils were in Opalaka, Florida. Robert Rozier leaned on his wooden staff at the edge of the parking lot and watched. The men in white robes and turbans kicked down the door and made their way into the apartment. The tenants inside protested. They screamed and flailed their hands, but it was no use. Yahweh's carried out furniture and tossed it onto the street. Couches, chairs, tables, desks, everything must go. One tenant walked from the apartment building and made his way straight over to Rozier. This guy wasn't small, but he looked like a scrawny teenager facing off against the former NFL defensive end. He defiantly informed Rozier that none of them were going anywhere. Rozier just smiled as the man got in his face. A crowd had assembled and was shouting, Fuck you, Yahweh's! Yahweh's go home! But nobody took a swing. Not even the cops. They said it was a civil dispute, none of their business. Truth was, the town only had five officers on the force, and the Yahweh's? Shit, you couldn't even count them. There were a sea of white robes and expressionless faces. Even the cops weren't fucking with these guys. The nation had purchased the apartment complex in Opalaka, just a half hour drive up the county from Miami the week before for half a million dollars. The cult was expanding. They now had churches in 16 cities with real estate and business holdings across the country. When they bought the apartment complex, they made it clear to the existing tenants that they were no longer wanted. A few days later, on Devil's Night, the Yahweh's came back in force to emphasize their point. The press descended on the apartment complex. People had questions about the Yahweh's, questions that suggested they weren't the feel-good force for peace they seemed to be. A spokeswoman for the cult told the press they were only removing furniture from empty apartments. The standoff lasted through the afternoon. When it got dark, Rozier and his death angels stood watch at the edge of the parking lot. If they got any pushback, they'd simply claim they were protecting their investment from Devil's Night hooligans. The tenants went into their apartments and locked their doors. They watched themselves on the 11 o'clock news. In nearby streets, teenagers in hockey masks set fire to garbage cans and spray-painted pentagrams on garage doors. A kid with homemade Freddy Krueger gloves chucked eggs at a window. They cackled like goblins and scattered off into the night. But under the watchful eyes of the Yahweh cult, the apartment complex was quiet. Shortly after midnight, tenants could hear a scuffle coming from outside their windows. Then they heard a voice, shaky and pitiful. Please, please, don't, don't shoot me. And then, gunshots. When the shots faded, the tenants wandered outside and found the bodies of two of their neighbors, shot execution style in the back of the head, bleeding out on the pavement. 
When the cops arrived, an officer spotted a man in a white robe walking toward the woods. The man paused. He locked eyes with the cop and then took off running. The cops set the dogs on him. They chased him into the dense forest. Their paws sunk into dead leaves with each long stride. Their noses wet with the sulfuric stench of the raw eggs and garbage campfires that still lingered in the air sniffed the forest for fear. They barked and howled and kept running. It was dark. This was a place for ghouls and goblins, for demons on leave from hell itself. A place of decomposition and decay, where every sound and every shadow was its own nightmare. The dog's eyes adjusted and saw the crumpled mass of a man in a white robe, curled up in a ball on the forest floor. They surrounded him. They growled low. The cops arrived, winded, but the man in white on the forest floor wouldn't give his name. For every question that cops asked, he gave the same answer. Praise Yahweh. Back at the station, the prisoner was more forthcoming. Yes, he was a member of the nation of Yahweh, and he said he was 404 years old. He couldn't remember his life before he converted. He gave his name as Niaraya Israel, child of God, but his fingerprints ID'd him as Robert Rozier. Cops found two guns near where he'd been hiding. One was registered to a previous murder victim, a man stabbed to death in his car a few months earlier. Both his ears had been cut off. Rozier was arraigned in his white robes and turban. The nation set him up with an expensive lawyer. Cult members handed out pamphlets in the streets of Miami, claiming Rozier would be exonerated by other witnesses. But the dead man's gun linked Rozier to a string of missing ear murders, and the lawyer seemed more interested in protecting Ben Yahweh than in getting Rozier off the hook. Rozier smelled a setup. He wanted a new lawyer, someone who had his best interests in mind, not the interests of a self-proclaimed messiah. Ben Yahweh flew into a rage. He excommunicated Robert Rozier from the church. More importantly, he went on television and disavowed Rozier publicly. The man was a serial killer, a psychopath who lied his way into the church. I don't need a gun to accomplish my purpose, Ben Yahweh said. For people who didn't know any better, it sounded like a message of peace. To cops who'd been watching the cult since Aston Green showed up minus one head in the Everglades, it was a threat of more killings to come. Rozier sweated inside a Florida prison, afraid for his life. He knew what happened to people who fucked with the Yahwehs. For the past year, he was what happened to people who fucked with the Yahwehs. Even if there weren't cult members in lockup with him, the cult had friends. The cult had money. He'd be lucky if he lived long enough to take a seat on old Sparky, Florida's electric chair. He figured it was all over. And then, someone came to visit Robert Rozier in prison. And everything changed. On October 7, 1990, a crowd of thousands assembled at Miami Arena. They're out to celebrate a major philanthropic figure, a man who had done more for Miami's black community than anyone in the turbulent decade that had just ended. The mayor declared Yahweh Ben Yahweh Day in the city of Miami. As the leader of the nation of Yahweh received the key to the city, federal prosecutors were putting the finishing touches on an indictment years in the making. 
The case stretched back to a body found without a head in the Everglades in 1983. It covered the disappearance of a karate expert from New Orleans, the murders of at least nine transients and drunks found dead in the city, their ears chopped off with what might have been machetes. And all of it hinged on the testimony of Robert Rozier. Robert Rozier faced the death penalty after his arrest for the double murder at the apartment complex in Opelika. When the Yahwehs cut him loose, he took the Fed's offer to turn state's evidence in exchange for a sweetheart deal. 22 years for four murders, fewer than he'd admitted to. Along with corroborating testimony from a few other church members, the Feds had enough to move on Ben Yahweh. In November 1990, four years after the killings in Opelaka, the Feds made their move. As the sun came up in Liberty City, FBI agents raided the Temple of Love. The press had been alerted, so cameras rolled as agents swarmed the pristine white warehouse complex. This was two years before Ruby Ridge and three years before Waco. This time, the feds got lucky. There were no weapons inside. Something else was missing from the temple the morning of the raid. Ben Yahweh was out of town on a preaching tour. His sermons focused on how he was being persecuted by the state, just like the Romans had done to him back when he came around the first time in Nazareth. It was half paranoia, half truth. The feds were watching him, and they knew he was in New Orleans that morning. They also knew he had a flock of death angels staying with him. The FBI agent in charge decided to take a small risk in order to avoid a bigger one. He called Ben Yahweh's hotel room. He told the cult leader the federal agents were outside ready to bring him in. They were concerned for his safety and their own. It would be better for everyone if Ben Yahweh came out on his own. Ben Yahweh understood. Within the hour, he was in federal custody on his way back to Florida to face 14 counts of conspiracy to commit murder. Federal prosecutors came at him with RICO laws, racketeering statutes that had been written in the 70s to go after the mafia. No one had ever thought of using those laws against a religious group. But the closer they looked at the nation of Yahweh with its various legitimate businesses, funding murder, extortion, and more, the more the cult looked like the mob. SWAT teams buzzed around the federal courthouse, worried the Yahwehs might attack the trial. Inside, 14 members of the cult sat in a row, all in white robes, each with his own lawyer. Robert Rozier coldly recounted the six murders. There was a seventh, a panhandler, who hassled Rozier for cigarettes once. He pissed Rozier off, so Rozier stabbed him, chucked the body in the river, ears intact. But the other killings were carried out on Ben Yahweh's orders. The defense called the captain of the football team at UC Berkeley as a character witness. Rozier was the ultimate manipulator, he said. He could tell bald-faced lies and no one would call him on it, in part because everyone knew Rozier carried a pistol. Defense lawyers called attention to the light sentence Rozier was getting in exchange for his testimony. The guy would say anything to dodge the electric chair. He'd even lie about the son of God. It was inevitable, Ben Yahweh's lawyers said. Their client claimed to be Christ, and here came the state of Florida to crucify him. Rozier's testimony alone wouldn't have been enough to nail Ben Yahweh to the cross. Rozier wasn't even in the cult when Aston Green was murdered in 1982 or when the Black Belt was beaten to death the following year. But the widow of the man shot dead by Yahweh's, the one who took a bullet and a machete to the neck, gave damning testimony. And there were others, people who fled after their own children were forced to beat the Black Belt's corpse with sticks cult members were so fucked up by the things they saw in the Temple of Love that they risked their lives and their heads to get out. Ben Yahweh took the stand in his own defense. 
He pronounced himself the Grand Master of the Celestial Lodge, the architect of the universe. He denied every accusation that Judas Robert Rozier made against him. The jury didn't buy it. They found him guilty on 14 counts of conspiracy to commit murder. They deadlocked on the racketeering and extortion charges. Ben Yahweh was sentenced to 18 years of which he served 10. A few years later, he died from prostate cancer. Robert Rogier served 10 years, including four leading up to the trial. He left prison in 1996. Three years later, he was picked up by the cops in California when he reverted back to his old habits. He wrote a bad check for 66 bucks so he could get his car fixed. It was Rogier's third arrest. The fraud bust before he joined the nation of Yahweh, the murders on the order of its leader, now this. In California in the 1990s, three strikes meant you were out. Robert Rozier got more years for fraud than he got for seven murders. 25 to life for a bad check. Game over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.